thank you very much for coming. Um, it's good to see you here. And uh, when I was given this seminar title, um, I thought, who will come to this? Such a jazzy title as Maintaining Church Unity in a Complex World. And then I remembered that for many church leaders, uh, for many elders and wives, for many women in ministry, this is your painful present. This is actually your painful present. And so some of you are probably here because you're facing issues of disunity. Uh, some of you might be in situations where unity is broken down. And if that isn't you, if, if you're enjoying wonderful harmony, then we're glad you're here and you have tremendous foresight because this is going to be an issue if you're involved in gospel ministry. Now, on page one of your handout, you should have a handout there. Um, you'll see that there's a list of disunity flashpoints. Now, what I want you to do, if you're sitting on your own, you're going to have to just shuffle next to somebody because we're all about encouraging unity. So uh, get yourself just into a pair and just for five minutes, pick one example of disunity that you've witnessed in the local church. Now, don't give all the details. Just give the basic example. And I want you just to share, why is it hard to maintain unity with that issue? What are some of the factors that make it hard? So just two minutes each, in a pair, and then we'll come back together. Okay, if I could jump into your chats. Uh, well done to the person who saw someone in the front row without someone and jumped in. Um, I, I'm not going to do feedback on that just now. We don't really have time to do that. There will be chance for some questions later. Um, I just wanted to ground what we're saying in reality so that we're thinking of real situations, not just giving principles, to remind us that disunity isn't a theoretical problem and neither is it a rare problem. Uh, someone was just saying, I could tick almost every box on that list, and maybe you felt that way. And if you're a church leader, it can sometimes feel a little bit like the, the um, whack-a-mole game. Have any of you ever played the whack-a-mole game? There's got to be whack-a-mole games in the arcades in Blackpool, doesn't there? Um, you know where the mole's heads keep popping up? And there's just times in church ministry where it feels like disunity is popping up all over the church all at the one time. Now, that's a bad image, by the way, because you shouldn't take a hammer <laughs> to uh, disunity, as we're going to say. Now, I've been a pastor in three different churches. Um, in the first one, I was an assistant pastor. In two of them, I've served as, as the pastor. And I wouldn't say that any of these churches have been unusually fractious, just ordinary churches. And yet, um, there have been countless hours over the last 19 years where I've dealt with issues of disunity. Uh, lying awake at night, thinking about, how do I get that person to talk to that person? Or having yet another tense discussion with a fellow leader where he sees it one way and I see it another way. Thousands of pastoral hours. And it's tempting to think sometimes, what a waste of energy. Uh, what a drain of time. Or I've sometimes thought, you know, this actually is a diversion from ministry. Now, in one sense, that's right. But in another sense, that's not quite right, that it's a diversion from ministry. Because when I come to Scripture, 
and I've come to Scripture many times on this issue, one of the things I found surprising is that unity is central to the plot line of Scripture. So to kind of flip that on its head, we could say that disunity is one of humanity's oldest problems. Scripture takes us on a journey from Babel in Genesis 11 to the multitudes of Revelation 7. From Babel, where humanity is scattered in judgment, all the way to a new humanity gathered in praise surrounding the throne. Salvation is a unification project. The God who is a perfect union in himself is uniting all things together under Christ. That's the gospel. That's where history is going. That's where the church is going. But we all know that the church isn't there yet. And it's amazing how honest the New Testament is about that fact, right? All the disunity that's chronicled in Acts, in the history of the church, and also in the letters. But God is not, if I could say it this way, God is not content with that present disunity. And he calls the church to unity, to be now what it will be then, and to live out practically what it already is spiritually. So the New Testament idea is that we are a unity in Christ. We're one body, and we have to maintain that unity on the ground level. And when that happens, the world sees and the world says, those are Jesus' disciples. So actually, unity is a missional thing when we get it right. Now, I start with that because um, that Bible overview keeps me sane as a church leader. It gives me perspective and heart when I'm weary of trying to hold relationships together in the church. I see that unity is not a diversion from God's purposes, but it's actually on the main motorway of God's purposes and plan. Now, this is particularly in our contemporary situation. Um, I think unity has always been a hard thing to maintain. Um, you know, depraved hearts and different opinions have always been around in the New Testament till now. It's probably true that churches are more diverse than they've ever been, however. I think we could probably argue that for various reasons that I've listed on the sheet. And that diversity is, is both wonderful on the one hand and hard on the other. And then you add on top of that something like uh, COVID. So <laughs> we were already struggling to cope with diversity in our churches, weren't we? And then suddenly we had this whole new raft of complex decisions dumped on us. And I want to suggest that COVID raised a number of important questions. I think COVID was actually very helpful in exposing some questions about unity and leadership. So some of these questions I think it posed. Are we really as united as we thought we were? Who decides what? Who actually makes certain decisions? How do we navigate things when we disagree? When you get three people on one side and three people on another, what do you do? Are we actually Christ-like when we disagree? 
We may even have asked, is our structure of leadership the right one? Or how about this one? I think this is a big one. Does our leadership operate in the way it says it does? There used to be, um, some of you are old enough to remember an advert with uh, Ron Seal, which was, I think, a thing you painted on your fence. And the slogan used to be, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Now, our leadership can say that it's plural, but is it actually, is it really a plurality that's working in that way? Are we skilled at managing change? These, these kind of questions were raised by COVID. Now, now, I hope today that we're going to receive some help in beginning to answer those questions. I need to warn you that there isn't a magic wand that I'm going to wave. I understand FIEC doesn't believe in magic wands. This is what I've been told. So I won't wave one, and I don't have one. But I do want us to think, with God's help, how can we help our churches maintain unity? And there's going to be some time for the questions at the end. So if you've got questions, jot them down and, uh, or comments and ask those at the end. So let's go through this. Uh, part B is holding it all together with God's almighty help. And I want to start with um, the main leader. And then we're going to move on to the plurality. And then we're going to move on to the kind of the led group, the, the, the membership. So the main leader. And I realize that some of you here will not be the main leader in whatever team you're part of. But many of you here are in that position. Uh, you're the paid pastor, or you may be seen as the kind of leading key person in whatever team you're involved in. People kind of look to you. If that's not you, there's still some really helpful things in this first point, so keep listening. But I would suggest that unity often emanates from the attitude of the main leader. And the first thing to think about here is examining our own hearts as leaders. I believe the biggest thing we need to give attention to is not our structures or our communication skills, but our hearts. Disunity begins from here, not from out there. Which means as a leader, I need to regularly consider my own attitudes and motives. So here's just some questions we should be asking ourselves, and these are by no means exhaustive. Um, am I responsible for this ministry, or do I act as if I own this ministry? Is this my church or God's church? Uh, is this my women's ministry or is this the women's ministry that God's given me responsibility for? Do you see there's a huge difference? Or this question, is my heart right now in this disagreement I'm having, is it governed by humility or pride? Test case, when people disagree with your thought through opinion, do you listen well? Or are you immediately defensive? I'm ashamed to say that, you know, if I've got my idea and someone comes with a contrary idea, I, I get very defensive. I've even found myself interrupting people without listening to all they have to say to get in my counterpoint. That's just pride. 
Here's another one. Are my expressions of emotions in this situation godly or ungodly expressions? I was speaking to a church leader recently who um, made the comment that most men in ministry don't realize they have an emotional tank. He was talking about physical tank, emotional tank, spiritual tank. He said most men don't realize they even have an emotional tank. Now, apologies, I don't mean to exclude um, the women here, but I do think that men in particular in church leadership are often worryingly unaware of their own emotions. They're sad, they're disappointed, they're hurt, they're angry, and often we're not terribly conscious of how those emotions are affecting us or how they're affecting those around us. And of course, that applies to all of us. We have emotions, there's godly expressions of them, and there are destructive, sinful ways. So these are the kind of things I think as leaders we need to be constantly giving consideration to. Now, the second thing is linked, and that is that if you're the main leader, you are the custodian of unity in your group. Now, that phrase comes from Dave Harvey's brilliant book, and if you've not read it, you should really read it. It's fantastic. The Plurality Principle. He says that the main leader is the custodian of unity. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all on you if people in your team fall out or disagree. It's not necessarily on you. But it does mean that you are to promote a culture of unity. That's, that's why we started with our hearts. Because if we're not examining our hearts, how can we expect that to be the culture of our leadership team and in the church? So just a few practical uh, thoughts here. These might be very obvious to you, but just consciously building a community of care and trust. Um, just in our eldership, for example, we've worked very hard to build um, closer relationships together outside of elders' meetings. Um, kind of going back a generation, I was speaking to a, an elder now retired in our church, he said, we never used to meet for fellowship outside of the elders' meetings. Um, do, I'm sure most churches do that kind of stuff, but do these sorts of things. Spend social time together. Another thing we do is we pair up elders into pairs and our elders meet three times a year in their pair just to talk about life. You talk about your marriage, I'll talk about mine. You talk about your parenting, I'll talk about mine. You talk about where you are with Christ, I'll talk about where I'm at with Christ. Massively helpful. Uh, we've also had uh, elders share in the elders meeting for the first 15 minutes a bit of a review of what's going on in their life and how we can pray for them spiritually. Now, all of that not only provides care within the leadership, but it also builds stronger bonds between us. Right? The only, we're not spending the only time together in debates and elders' meetings, but we're building relationships. In a previous church where I was pastor, the elders didn't really do things like that. And, and I had to propose it as the kind of custodian of um, unity. Now, just another quick thing is that, again, this might seem obvious, but if you're the main leader, you can't always get your own way. And some of us need to hear that. 
if you expect other leaders to often give way to your proposals, and that will often happen if you're the main leader, it will be mainly people saying yes to you. If that's the case, then what does it say if you never do that in reverse? Submission needs to be a two-way street. And actually, if it's not a gospel issue, um, it's a great opportunity for me to model humility when I'm outvoted in the leadership team and to model the kind of humility I want to see from the other leaders. Do you see that that's being a custodian of unity? So don't go all huffy when it doesn't go your own way. So um, custodian of unity. Third thing I want us to think about is uh, triaging issues. Do you have a skill and an ability to triage the importance of different issues? And what type of issue are we disagreeing over? Um, so is it, here's a helpful kind of little series of axes. Is it a right or wrong issue where there's a morally right and a morally wrong according to scripture? Or is the thing we're debating more a case of wise and unwise? A judgment call where there's no Bible text that can win the argument. Or is it just a case of like or dislike? It's not really even a matter of wisdom. It's preference. So um, just go back to page one. Um, again, if you just kind of split into your pairs, just quickly go down the list there and uh, put those issues into whichever category you think is the, the main one for it to go into. So is it right or wrong, wise or unwise, like or dislike? Just, just two, three minutes. Okay, don't worry about getting all the way down to the bottom. That's okay. Um, just let, let's come back together. Let me just say a couple of quick things about that. Um, I, I often say to myself, I should never fall out with anyone over an issue of preference. Um, if something's a matter of preference, just give it up super quickly. Give it away. Um, issues of wisdom. I mean, as, as leaders generally, this is where we spend most of our time debating, don't we? Because if the matter's right or wrong, we don't really need a big debate about it, do we? We just see it's in Scripture, we do it, uh, we obey it, but often it's in the wisdom area. And, and of course, it's easy to fall out over wisdom issues. Um, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, I would say, fall out over a wisdom matter. It wasn't something that was clear in Scripture, but they had a different judgment call. So, Knowing these different categories won't necessarily prevent this unity, but for me, I find that it lowers the temperature for me, and sometimes it does for others, when we just point out in the middle of a discussion, this is a wisdom matter. Scripture isn't clear on this. This person who disagrees with me is not an idiot or, or a non-Christian because they take that view. I find that helpful. Okay, let's turn to page four. And let's talk about um, the plurality. So you see the logic of this. We're moving from inwards to outwards, from ourselves, and we now turn to the leadership team. And this could be a ministry team. It could be a staff team. It could be an eldership team. Super obvious point, as most of my points today are, is 
that this is where disunity is at its most dangerous. That's obvious, isn't it? If the leadership team implodes, then so does the whole ministry. So does the whole church. Um, If the leadership team can work through their differences, then the ministry or church will more likely, not always, but will more likely stay together. And God has called us to do this in plurality. It's interesting that God has built plural leadership into the very structure of local church life. Now, I'm not going to argue the case for that just now. I'm assuming that most of us here will agree with that. Um, There's stuff in the footnotes if you're not sure about that. But what I'd like to ask is, why has God done it that way? Why has God built plurality into the structure of local church leadership? Now, Dave Harvey, I think, gives an excellent answer to this, uh, where he says, God chose this method of church government because to work well, Plurality requires what God values. Humility, contrition, word-trembling leadership. Further down he says, God values both the ends and the means. He not only wants the mission to be accomplished, but God wants to see churches that flourish and last. Is plurality the most effective form of leadership? Dave Harvey says that's not really what matters in this picture. Plurality is better for our humility to create a Christ-like character and culture. God's interested in the means, not just the end. So it's a good thing, it's a God thing that we lead as a team. Um, I think the trouble is, and I think COVID exposed this for many of us, not every plurality is a genuine one. It's possible to have a fake plurality where the way we function is not what it says in the tin. So I notice these contrasts. In a fake plurality, the main leader or some other person in the leadership team cannot lose a vote among the leaders. In a true plurality, they can, right? Everyone in the leadership team can lose in a discussion. In a fake plurality, some leaders don't speak up to shape the discussion. Now, I realize that on smaller issues, not everyone's going to speak, but on a a really big issue, in a true plurality, all the leaders have a voice. In a fake plurality, uh, the main leader never gets followed in their vision. In a true one, the main leader often gets followed but with accountability and feedback. Notice there that I said often, not always. In a fake plurality, important decisions are decided by just the main leader or a subgroup of the leadership. This is otherwise known as the meeting before the meeting. If you know, you know what I'm talking about, the meeting before the meeting, the little WhatsApp group with the two or three elders who decide what's really going to happen when everyone meets. With true plurality, the biggest decisions are decided by the whole group. Now, in in one church that I served in, there was a non-staff elder who really held the power within the eldership. 
Uh, people were afraid to disagree with him. No decision got through unless he approved it, that I can remember. That wasn't a genuine plurality. That was a dictatorship. And it's not always the paid uh, pastor that does that. So look at your leadership team, whatever group you're serving in, and ask that question, are we really operating as a genuine plurality? If we are, how can we make it work even more smoothly? I want to just suggest a few practical things. The first one is uh, having some understanding of group dynamics, I think is important. Now, uh, we don't need to be experts in this or in sociology, um, but we do need to have some awareness of how any group works. Even just something as simple as, do we have an even number or an odd number in our team? It actually makes a huge difference. Uh, when it comes to a razor-thin wisdom call, whether you have an even number or an odd number. Also, if you have more leaders in the group, so if you're in a kind of large leadership team, decisions tend to take longer to come to, but they're often better decisions because they've been sifted through more minds, more brains, more critique. If there's just two or three of you, you might get to the decision quick, but it might be a poor and unwise decision. That's a leadership, that's a group dynamic. Um, another one to think about is how staff affects your group dynamic. Uh, some of you might be a member of staff on a ministry team, and you might find that just everyone automatically defers to you. Like you just have all the power because you're the paid member of staff. Just be aware of that dynamic. Or on an eldership team, there's a danger that staff members will come to the elders meeting with virtually complete proposals, which they've discussed and they've agreed. And the danger is that non-staff elders can feel disenfranchised and not included. Then just a practical idea particularly if you have a slightly bigger team, so maybe over three or four people. We found in, in my present church, Greenview, that delegating some discussions is really helpful. Um, so we delegate some of our discussions to sub-teams. And the sub-team is often just a group of maybe three people. They thrash it out, and then they bring the conclusion to the whole leadership team. Now, now, we obviously can tweak that. We, can, we maybe could even uh, not go with it. But we found that to be a godsend. Now, we don't normally do that with the absolutely biggest issues, but on many of the matters we discuss, we take it out of the main meeting and we, like, we let the guys thrash it through. It's a lot easier than seven or eight guys trying to work through every single issue from start to finish. It's just a practical thing. Final thing on group dynamics and I would say I've not been terribly aware of this at times, is that group personality forms over time. So in any group, if it stays together long enough, uh, you'll find that it, you begin to form some common ways of thinking, some understood approaches and norms, and you only really notice it when a new person joins the team. That's when you, that's when you notice it. Because the new person doesn't know the norms, they don't know how everything works, 
And they're not trying to be disruptive, but it is a little bit disruptive. And it's a really good thing for the team. But just be aware of that dynamic. Um, I heard someone say recently that when you add even one new person to a team, you should consider it a total reset. It's as if you're starting over again. Yeah, it's just a kind of helpful thing to bear in mind. I think when you lose a leader, it has less of an impact than when you add a new leader. Now, sorry if that's obvious to you, but I just think that's a, these are helpful things for navigating plurality. Now, let's think about conflict for just a few minutes and differences in a team. I think it's good to start by noting and making sure that we're communicating to our team that diversity is good. Diversity is good and hard. It's both of those things, good and hard. So classically, you have opposites within any, uh, any team. Um, I do recommend the book um, Five Voices. Some of you probably have read that book that talks about the different voices speaking across the table. And in that book, they talk about the fact that, that each voice has an opposite voice. Um, so you've got the cautious person on one side of the table, and you've got the gung-ho risk-taking person on the other side. And they really don't get along because their instincts are opposite. And yet they've both got something important to say. And we need to help our leaders see that those differences bring strength and balance to the team. So it's hard, but it's good. Now, conflict is, is going to happen. Um, there's, a, there's a fairly new book out by Ken Sand and Kevin Johnson that a lot of people are, are recommending to read, and I would uh, recommend it to you as well. It's called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And one of the things they talk about in the group is they talk about three approaches to conflict. There's being a peacemaker, there's being a peace faker, and there's being a peace breaker. So a peace faker avoids conflict, pretends everything's fine. A peace breaker attacks the opponent and just does whatever is necessary to win the argument. But a peacemaker moves towards the other person with grace and truth. Now you just need to think through for yourself which of those you tend to be. In my experience, I'm a person who tends to avoid confrontation. So my tendency is peace faking. And at one point in my ministry, I was part of a, of a leadership team where the whole culture of that team was peace faking. The whole culture was don't confront anything that might disrupt the status quo. So it kind of put my peace faking on steroids. And I learned from that. It took a while to, to start to see the bad fruit of that. But I soon learned that it all blows up in the end if you don't deal with it. So not only is it, is it biblical to peacemake, but actually it's just pragmatic. Tabiti Anyabwili at the FIC conference a few years ago um, gave some really sterling advice. It's just one of those one-liners, and it's stuck in my head since then. He simply said, have the awkward conversation. 
Whatever that conversation is that's in your mind, you're thinking, that's going to be awkward. He had to learn that as well. Have the awkward conversation. Don't avoid it. You're going to regret it in the long run if you do. So I've been trying to apply that. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over the next two points. Let me just say something quickly about power dynamics. I think there's a seminar this afternoon that's going to deep dive into some of this, but I feel like I can't not mention this because I think it's actually a big issue relating uh, to unity. I think we do need to get our heads around the issue of power and how that relates to unity in the church. Marcus Honeysett's book, Powerful Leaders, is a must-read, I would say. What's helpful is that it makes visible something that is often invisible, and yet when someone talks about it, you go, yep, I can, see, I can actually see that when you point it out. Power dynamics. And power dynamics can exist on every level of church life. Um, someone without any position or status in the church can actually have enormous influence. Um, it's just worth being aware of that. You know, sometimes you're in a members meeting and someone gets up and makes a strong point against the leadership. Um, in some cases, that person has no influence in the church. You know, no one in the church takes them seriously. There are other people in your church, when they get up and when they speak, you're concerned because you know they have a lot of influence and people listen to them. Church leaders, of course, by definition, have most of the power. And uh, Marcus Honeysett talks about the slippery slope from legitimate uses of power to illegitimate and from transparent uses of power to non-transparent. Now, if you don't know what, what that's all talking about, read that book. I think we need to become more tooled up and skilled up on that issue. Also, I, I found online this week, as well as the book, there's an online uh, free resource. It's called Audit of Abuse of Power. And it's something you can work through just individually, but also as a leadership team. Um, so I would encourage you to, to do that. Now, we're going to jump to the scenario at the back, just to break up me speaking. And um, you see the scenario there. We're going to spend about maybe, maybe 10 minutes in this. And I want us just to kind of apply some of what we've been thinking about. So a new children's worker arrives in a church, is quickly concerned by, a piecemeal, by the piecemeal, sometimes substandard material being used for Sunday school teaching. Uh, they want to introduce a unified curriculum, but suspect there might be some resistance from some of the teachers. What steps might the youth worker take? What missteps do they need to avoid? Must this be a change that's made at all costs? What tier of issue is it? And how might unity be promoted? So I want you just to spend, spend a little bit of time discussing that, and then we will get a brief bit of feedback from maybe two or three people just to hear some thoughts. Okay, I'm just conscious of time. It's really running away. Just, it, it, does anyone want to give a little bit of feedback on that? Anyone want to give just a little bit of feedback? What was your kind of main, main points that this person would need to think about? Don't be shy. Uh, so I think they wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to come across like everyone's doing it badly. Uh, you know, if you want to change, you think, well, what's wrong? And rather than sort of instantly coming across like that, um, that no, we're appreciating, but this is an area I think could be improved. And one of I think humility would always we can improve things. So uh, trying to help people to see that, I, yeah, 
I think you could easily take a year to change. I wouldn't, you know, if they've just arrived, I wouldn't change it right there. I think they've got a, right. a year of relationship building and getting to know what really is happening and people to get to know them that look, you know, this, this children's work is on your side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Great. Anyone else want to add anything to that? The one thing that came up in us is an acknowledgement from the leadership of the church that this has actually happened on our watch. Mm -hmm. And the reason we brought the children's worker in is because we're concerned mm -hmm. for our children and their future. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So it's not about the, the, the Sunday school teachers, it's actually saying the leadership of the church coming up and saying, this is something that we recognize yeah. needs to be addressed, which is why we brought the children's worker in. So, and, and they're just highlighting something that actually we're already probably aware of anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Because if you weren't aware of it, we won't be hiring a children's worker in the first place, would we? That's helpful. Yeah, so not just leaving the children's worker out there to be shot at, but actually the leadership standing with them in what they're doing. That's helpful. Okay, yes? Ruth and I were just discussing that. Um, it'd be good to for the, the person coming in with the help of the other leaders in the church to try and understand why the resistance is there. So is it that people feel like um, sort of like they've been holding this ministry for many years and they're afraid to grow and learn things new. And if there are any legitimate needs there to try and meet those needs and to affirm people um, mm -hmm. in what they have been doing uh, so helpful. that they yeah feel really held. Yeah, that's extremely helpful. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. Uh, just one more quickly. Yeah. We wondered whether in terms of potential scenarios developing like this in the future, there should have been more discussion mm -hmm. as part of the appointment of the children's worker mm -hmm. in terms of where is the children's work at? What do the church leaders feel, good, bad or indifferent about the church, Helpful. the children's work? What's the, the potential uh, appointees? Uh, sort of philosophy of Very ministry, helpful. how might that work so yeah. that the person comes in with a clear understanding mm -hmm. of sort of what's expected to stay the same and, and where yeah. there's scope for change and people are already kind of up for that. Brilliant. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, let's, let's move on. Um, I want to have time for questions at the end. And I'm going to, for this last section, which is on um, the kind of led, you might say, the people who are being led or the church member, if we're looking from an elder's perspective. I want to just I want to just touch on that middle section, um, section B, which I think is probably the most important, which is uh, leading uh, people through change carefully. So um, I guess all of us have been navigating big changes in recent years and leading uh, churches and ministries through change. A couple of big things that we've had to change in the last five years, one of them was that we walked our members through joining FIEC. And um, we're a church historically with a brethren background. So that wasn't just straightforward. Um, another big thing was we decided to move the dial on some of the women's issues. Uh, we are complementarian, but we wanted to just move the dial on that, just maybe be a bit more uh, biblical in our approach. And again, that wasn't straightforward. So what did what did we learn? Well, I think one thing is, to neither go too fast or too slow. Um, with big changes, we can't just do them overnight uh, and expect nothing's going to explode. Uh, but equally, we, we can't just wait the next 10 years. So you need to find a sweet spot, don't you, when it's a big change. We found that plenty of pre-warning is massively helpful. 
So for instance, if it's, a, if it's a major change that we foresee coming, we will say to the members at least a year out, sometimes even 18 months ahead of time, the elders are currently discussing issue X or we're re-evaluating our approach to issue Y. Uh, and that will be a genuine thing. We'll be going to our away days to discuss these matters. And it just flags up in the member's mind that something's coming. There's more details to come. And I think that really helps, you know, rather than turning up at a member's meeting and boom, here's the change, uh, you know, sort of throwing it at them. Carefully listening to opponents of the change is so vital. Um, so again, just using our context, we, we offered to visit anybody in the church who disagreed with the proposal. And we said, however long that takes, if there's 50 people, you know, we'll make our way around each and every person and we'll listen to your concerns. And I think you do need to genuinely listen to concerns. It needs to not be just a token thing um, that you're hearing people. Um, also, if it's applicable, uh, we did teaching. Uh, so particularly on the, on the women's role stuff, uh, we did a couple of Saturday evenings where we just looked at scripture together and we argued the case persuasively, but also respectfully. Uh, and what, by that, what I mean is that when we came to issues of disagreement among Christians, we included those other points of view and we presented them in their best light. So we didn't say this is some stupid point of view. We said there's lots of Christians that actually hold this. There's people in the church that hold this view. Here's why they hold it. And here's another view. And that I think that was very important. Um, not to kind of mock the other persuasion. I just think tone is absolutely vital when it comes to change. Just one more thing to throw out. Um, this is maybe just a, a slightly more controversial thing, but just something I want to throw in because every seminar needs one controversial idea. Um, often unanimity among leaders is seen as the gold standard with these things. What I mean by that is we like to say, don't we, with a big change, all the leaders agree and all the trustees agree and all the deacons agree, right? We feel that makes it a stronger case. On the change in women's role, we actually had a minority of elders who disagreed with some of the changes we were making. And the congregation were probably already aware of that because they knew the theological views of different elders. And we chose with their agreement to actually make that public. So when we talked about it, we said um, that the majority of elders want to make this move and the, and the rest of the elders have got behind and supported the other elders. And actually in the, in the presentation that we made to the church, some of the guys who disagreed helped me make the presentation. And it was very powerful. Um, it's one thing me standing up there, who's all for the change and saying, you know, this is not a gospel issue. But it was much more powerful when someone who disagreed with it was up there saying, this is not a gospel issue. And I'm not leaving the church over it. So that's just something to think about. Okay. I wanted to leave time for questions or, as I said, comments as well, because there's lots of wisdom in this room, I'm sure. So if you have a question or a comment, just put your hand up and uh, Phil will come on anything at all that we've uh, covered. Thanks, Colin. I wanted to ask about that last point that you made. And um, 
so the, the, the elders who were, had a different stance on the issue, um, who were able to sort of voice those things in the meeting, yeah. um, how did you then ensure that there was commitment to the changes in the church family when there'd been that, those contrary views? Yes. Um, how, how did the elders sort of come on board with that? Who disagreed? What, what was that like? And how did you bring yeah. about that change? Well, I mean, in our case, it was quite straightforward because it was about public participation in church services. Um, so the church had kind of made a bit of a move, maybe, well, I don't know, 15 years before and allowed more women's participation. So we were moving the dial on a couple of specific things. So that was quite straightforward in the sense that at those particular services or those particular opportunities, women were allowed to take part. And as a leadership team, we, we had to obviously encourage that to happen. We had to arrange for people to come to do Bible readings and other things. Because obviously a lot of the women in the congregation were understandably hesitant. You know, just having the freedom didn't mean they were comfortable doing it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but essentially that's what happened. We, we started to build that into the program. Yeah, I think it was slightly different so in, in terms of, you know, for those elders who disagreed, yeah. um, did they then move forward with you? Yes. Yes, so there was, no, there was no ongoing issue of them bringing it back up in elders' meetings. They accepted that that was the direction. That they, they were not only in a minority in the eldership, but probably in the church as well. Um, so something they weren't super happy about, but ultimately, you know, there was another hundred things about the church they're very happy with. So, yeah. You mentioned um, the idea of a couple of you going to someone's house, members that maybe got an issue mm -hmm. of something or other. And discussing, I thought that's, that's great. Would you do that, or have you done that with with those that maybe are, are just coming along from time to time to church? Have you actually done that? No, those that aren't members, would you see More that as, as a, an important thing to do still? We we didn't do that. No, we didn't. Um, yeah, I don't think we would tend to do that. I mean, we don't have a massive number of non-members who are regular. We do have some, um, but no, we probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, I guess it's one of the privileges of being a member is that you're, you know, you're part of the consulted group on, on decisions. Um, what, what did you have in mind? Was there something particular? No, I, I was interested on that because, I mean, I think there are people that sit on the fence and don't become members. So yes. I can see that as, as giving a, a, a good reason to be a member. Yes. Apart from anything else. So thank you. Totally. You get to come to the members meetings. Yeah. One of the, one of the few pros. Anything else? Um, following on the same theme, um, I think it's Thomas Rainier refers to certain members who use their church like a country club <laughs> where they come mm. and issues become issues you just want to wind up people about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm interested in what you were saying about using civility and mm. being gracious and things yeah. like that. But do you believe there comes a time where you just go, hey, guys, hmm. time's out? Yes. So you, I guess, can you just say a little bit more about the kind of situations? This is someone that's on the fringe but it's being disruptive this kind is, of in the uh, church. This is a member, and perhaps yeah. this is in relation to non-gospel issues. Yeah. Perhaps you're upgrading your whole fabric yeah. of, um, yeah. you know, maybe moving to a new dimension of yeah. software in the church. Yeah. And somebody decides they're the expert uh -huh. in all aspects about iClouds. Yeah. 
and yeah. uh, they tell you that you use an iCloud that potentially their children could be in some way harmed mm -hmm. and you disprove it. And, yeah. But it continues to be a major event. Yeah. And it's quite frankly mm -hmm. a not gospel event. Yeah. But it creates disunity yeah. in a sizable church. Yeah, sure. No, I totally agree. I think there is a time when someone's being disruptive um, to move to that. But I think there's a bit of a process there, isn't there? So you do want to listen to that person, try and understand the concerns. But yeah, we've all probably got people like that in our churches who keep coming back on the same point again and again. And there have been times as elders where we've said, look, you've brought this matter to us numerous times. You know our position on it. Um, I don't think I've ever quite said to somebody, if you're not happy, find another church. But I guess essentially that's kind of what you're saying at some point is that you need to submit ultimately to the authority of the elders on this issue. It's not a gospel matter. And the issue becomes their disruptiveness. The disruptiveness is the issue. It's the fact that they're emailing other members about it or constantly badgering elders over it. And two, you know, I think we've got to be careful not to stamp down on that too quickly. And obviously, yeah, there are people with all sorts of mental health issues and there's different other factors as we know. But yeah, there are people that are just disruptive. Um, and I, although I'm a generally quite a kind of gracious, easy-mannered person, there's times where I can be quite direct with someone that I do feel is just out to cause trouble. Um, um, just on plurality, plurality mm. isn't just numbers. Yeah. It's nice when there's that plurality of personality. Uh, <laughs> character is constant, um, but in terms of personality, think yeah. of those five voices. Mm -hmm. You know, my sense is so many of our elders are guardians. Uh, that's why we appoint them as elders, because yeah. they are the guardians. Mm -hmm. um, how do we ensure that we get, you know, the pioneers and, and, and the other types yeah. um, to ensure that we've got a real plurality, not yeah. just in terms of number, but uh -huh. uh, in terms of that personality? I wish I had a good answer to that question. No idea. Because I think that the, the thing, it was interesting today, I was very struck by what was said uh, at the end of that session about not just training up guys for UK ministry, but who are the people that are going to head for the mission field? Yeah, we, all of our focus seems to be on local. The trouble with that is the people we're sending out probably are the risk takers. <laughs> so even the, even the pastors we're training up for here are probably not quite so radical, never mind the elders. I don't really know what the answer to that is. I mean, some of these things is just kind of God-given. You kind of need to accept who God gives you, but I, I don't know. I suspect on most leadership teams, the pastor will be the, the guy that's trying to pull everyone towards change, but it's not always. I wish I had a good answer on that, but I don't really. Um, uh, just a quick point on the point about agreement, disagreement. Um, I. Would you say that uh, it's one thing to have elders who disagree but have come to a position where we don't agree but we're happy to accept? Yeah. That's quite different to yeah. we don't agree and yes. we still don't agree. Yes. Uh, have you, I don't know if you've had that situation, um, but I don't want to spend too long because obviously we just talked about it. Just on the recruiting elders, we, we had to go through a process recently where um, we appointed three new elders and we were almost consciously looking for different character types and experience types yeah. and having to explain to the church that mm. these guys don't necessarily fit your model because some mm -hmm. of the feedback was, well, he doesn't seem like an elder. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, that's the idea because they do have the character qualifications 
and they are leading their family well, but they, mm-hmm. they're not particularly upfront people. Yeah. Um, so they don't fit the model that the church yeah. was loose to. Right. I, I, I don't know if you've experienced that as well. Mm. Sorry, two questions there, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some things that, that certainly in our leadership team, we, we do look for unanimity on because of the importance of the issue. So, for example, appointing a new elder, we would want unanimity on that. If there's even a single elder saying, I've got questions about this guy. Now, we, we might try and persuade him. We might come back to that conversation. But so there's things like that. What was your other question? Different character types, yeah. I, I, I think that's helpful. So, I mean, in the church, I'm in an unusual situation where pretty much all of my elders are gifted to teach. But the other churches I've been in have not been like that. Um, the one I was in in Northern Ireland, probably two of the guys had preaching gift out of six of them. Um, so it was very much like that. Um, I think it's hard if, I would say in my church, it would be challenging for us to appoint what you're describing, even although it's biblically reasonable. Because I agree with you, the gift of teaching is not necessarily public teaching, but an ability to explain the Bible in whatever context. So I, I, I think all you can do there is t- teach the congregation on that. Um, even within the New Testament, there's an emphasis on those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we know that there's a, there are some elders who make that an emphasis and do m- much more than others. So there's a differentiation. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. So you were saying about, you know, when you make a decision and then you don't want to say to people like, um, you know, listen to sort of maybe their frustrations or worries or whatever, and just as a token gesture. So if, so if you've made a decision, but you still want to listen to people, yeah. how do you sort of manage that when the decision's already set in stone? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think, I think one thing is that... Um, and it maybe depends on what the issue is, but um, you may have to have the openness to change your mind on the issue. So it kind of depends what it is. Um, I don't think as elders we should be ever going in with our minds fully made up. So again, we would probably say to people, this is the direction we feel would be probably right to take, but we now want to talk to the congregation. Um, I, but, I, but I think even, even the conversation to say, well, this is our view, but actually what are your views is still helpful, I think. Even if, even if it's not going to change our mind, we can say to people, look, we want to hear your perspective, your point of view. Um, or do you, want to, do you want to put questions to us? Do you want to challenge our view? So sometimes it's a bit of a, a, a debate or a discussion. But I just think it's, it's taking the time to say, let's have a conversation. That's the most important thing. Um, it shows the value to, to people and it shows that we were open to listening to every point of view. Um, okay, and Mark, one more. The best to last. So, like, I know you talked about, you know, peace faking, peacemaking, and peace breaking. But what about, like, it, it all sounds very management. What about bearing the marks of our Lord Jesus and mm-hmm. just taking the hit? Yeah. Have you done that? Never, Mark. Never. I've never done that. No. What, do, what does that mean? Do you want to come up here and teach this? <laughs> uh, yeah, there is, there is a time for that. And I think that's, again, that's part of the wisdom, isn't it, of, of church life and leadership, isn't it, is a lot of the time you're just soaking stuff up, aren't you? Um, even in challenging things in church life, you know, you've got to work at what levels it's at. I think church leaders shouldn't be sort of jumping into every single little issue. Sometimes you hear little rumors of there's a little thing going on there. I think elders shouldn't be too quick to jump into that. 
but be ready to come in when it's necessary. Um, and I think similarly with ourselves, yeah, there's times where um, we just need to absorb. And then there's times where I think not only for yourself, but actually for the benefit of the other person. I think that's a, a big question that I ask is, um, will this be important for the person to be challenged on this? Um, so can I let it go? That's one thing. Am I just going to be annoyed at this person? Uh, can I let it go? And, but secondly, is this a big enough issue that they need to be challenged? Because potentially this is going to be a pattern that they're going to repeat with other people. So it's a loving thing for them and for the church. I don't know if that's, that's useful. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, can we thank Colin for his uh, time? <laughs> We're going to lunch now. I'm going to pray and I'll give thanks for the food uh, as well. And uh, Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for all that we've been hearing this last hour or so. Father, we pray that you would help us to be godly men and women who seek to maintain unity in all the complexity we're swimming through in our culture. Father, we know that there are many in the room who are going back to complicated situations. Please would you strengthen and help them? Uh, might they know uh, just how much the Lord Jesus loves them and cares for them. Uh, Father, I pray that everyone here would continue to look to our wonderful Saviour. Father, thanks for the refreshment of food and drink and fellowship over lunch. Uh, thank you for the food that's been provided. Would you bless it to us, please, uh, and help us to enjoy the rest of our time this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. You can access more resources for church leaders, including articles, videos and podcast episodes on our website, fieec.org.uk.